Hi, I'm Bill Bourne. You're listening to Talking Blues. So you're just back from Germany. Three weeks out there? Yes. Um, I interviewed Lester uh-huh. the day you left for Germany. That's right. So yes. tell yes. me how the tour was. Oh, it was fantastic. Sort of a bit like clockwork in some ways. You'd expect, I guess. Everything went very smoothly. And particularly, uh, we all noticed the enthusiasm of the audience. You know. So... Just to, for those who didn't listen to the Lester interview, which happened a few weeks back, you hadn't been on tour with the Tri-Continental Group, Lester and Slim, Madagascar Slim, uh, for like seven years or something, is that correct? Yeah, at least. uh, I think the last time we toured, it's a bit murky, it's funny, (laughs) like we don't really remember, but it seems to me it was 2008. So that's a while ago. Yeah. And then in 2016, we we did some dates in BC, the three of us, and we did some live recording. And and then earlier this year, in March 2018, <clears throat> we uh, got together and did a short tour with a new member of Tricontinental, Michael Treadway, the drummer <clears throat> on drums. Yeah, and um, it was wonderful to. Really, to have that uh, rhythmic core going on in our music. Um, we worked with a drummer previously in Europe, but this uh, somehow, uh, it's hard to describe, you know. Mike is from Canada, and something about North America. I have theories about it, but anyway, something about North America. <laughs> no, I want to hear this theory, because... I mean, the band is called Tricontinental. Yes. It's three different musicians, based around three different musicians from three different continents. Yeah. So it's interesting to say that, to hear you say that you have a theory about North American musicians. Yeah. uh, The theory is, it has a lot to do with the blues. Right. Okay. And it's interesting. I did a workshop at the Vancouver Folk Festival Back in, uh, I think it was 2004 or so. Anyway, at this workshop, there was a woman. Now, I don't recall her name at the moment, but she had written a whole, done a lot of research and written a whole paper about the role of indigenous people in the development of the blues. Wow. Okay. And she said, if you look into it, it literally comes down to about 50-50. The blues really developed about 50-50 between African-Americans and indigenous people. And she said the primary reason for that was that the Europeans that were, you know, I guess you could say invaded North America at the time, were seen as a common enemy of those two groups of people. And so they gravitated to each other and they tended to whenever possible they hung out together and they made music together wow and if you look even at a lot of the some of the most prominent artists like Jimi Hendrix or Hank Williams and um, um, 
Oh, I, I'm trying to remember the name of it. There, anyway, lots of other people. There's all kinds of them. There, you know, Robbie Robertson is another one. Um, but there's many that are part native at least, right? So my theory is that I really noticed this about, for example, if you go to Europe, and there's a lot of people there that love the blues. Mm -hmm. They love the blues. And that's understandable. <laughs> <laughs> but there's a lot of musicians there that play the blues too. Mm -hmm. But it, it seems to be there's something uh, very subtle in, in most cases that I've experienced of European musicians playing the blues in that it's almost like the, the music is too precise or something. So does it have something to do with on the beat, behind the beat, yeah, behind the beat? Yeah, absolutely. But I think it may be more... Like my theory is that the blues really is related to the indigenous music of this continent, North America, in a big way. Mm -hmm. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One... Uh, African music is very much on the beat. Right. Most of it is really like potent in that way. Whereas you find blues has got this kind of like behind the beat feel and sometimes ahead of the beat, like sort of more around the beat. It's right. quite interesting. <laughs> uh, powwow music though has this, for well, powwow of course is only one part of indigenous music from North America, but has this incredibly grounded groove with the big drum mm -hmm. when they play, everybody plays together. Not really unlike blues in that regard. And the singing and everything tends to really kind of float around this grounded groove. And um, so my theory is that if... If you're born in North America and you eat the food here and you get the dust in your body, that you're getting the essence, some of the essence of the music in your body. And not to mention the fact that you grow up with, with the sensibilities of that music around you, kind of in the air right. too, you know. Okay, so I have to ask, Madagascar Slim in your band. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. He comes from a different continent. Does, yes. Is there a different musical sensibility or is there a different percussive sensibility to the way he plays in your band? Um, when it comes to his um, Malagasy music, the mm -hmm. music of Madagascar, there, there is a different sort of attitude to the rhythm. But Slim started studying... Uh, blues when he was a teenager and he really got into it like he I don't know if you maybe you've never heard him play but he can like imitate Jimi Hendrix and mm -hmm. just like <laughs> bring a tear to your eye like it's unbelievable because he you know he happened to get it, he managed to get his hands on those recordings and he slowed them down and did everything he could to figure out every solo that Hendrix played. And, and other people, lots mm -hmm. of other people, right? And he really loved the blues. And then he came here in his early 20s. And then he ended up playing blues in Toronto for many years. Right. Steady, like with 
great blues players from here. And so he is equally adept with the blues and with the African music. And, um, yeah, I mean, there, there is a connection with the rhythm to what you'd say, Madagascar, Malagas music mm-hmm. and the rhythms there, particularly the very intense kind of six, eight rhythm known as Salagi. And, uh, yeah, there's a connection between that and shuffle and and swing rhythms. So yeah, it's sort of it's very interesting. A slim, uh, yeah, he is kind of able to hop from one to the other quite uh, with a lot of agility. Yeah, it's funny because I don't know why, but with you and with Lester, I think I don't think blues, and I know you play a lot of blues yeah, music, yeah. but. When I think of you, I don't. I think automatically more folk and yeah, sure, singing songwriter stuff. Yeah, but but blues is a big part of what you do. Well, tricontinental, there's an, a blues influence in almost everything we do. Mm-hmm. And early on, when I started playing professionally, when I in my early twenties, I remember uh, learning Mississippi John Hurt mm-hmm. tunes, and then some other tunes and. I recognized right away, I felt a deep comfort with that music. So you could say Mississippi John Hurt, I mean, it's Piedmont. Blues is a bit different than, than you know, I guess sort of mainstream, what people think of as blues in right. many cases. But uh, a, a deep comfort, I, I, don't, I can't explain it. I mean, it just felt like home, you know. That's how it felt to me. So... Um, yeah, that's a big influence in the way I sing and in the way I play the the guitar. Although you wouldn't say it's like Chicago blues in any way. Right. You know what I mean? So So, so when I talked to Lester, he said, I have no idea if people are going to show up. It's been a number of years since you played Europe. So tell me about the tour and how how it was. You said it was well-received, but Mm. were you surprised by the turnout? Were you surprised by the reaction? Yeah, uh, in in some cases both ways by the turnout, and some places we were a little disappointed, but in other cases we were just like really blown away by the turnout. So uh, apparently, you know, the scene has changed a bit over the last few years in in Germany, and uh, there's various reasons for that. I guess it's kind of fractured a bit, maybe because of the internet. Mm-hmm. And stuff like that. That's what some people think. But, but, uh, yeah, no. That it's like people were waiting for us. They were, were you for so long? Well, yeah. It's a beautiful thing, you know. But even even with you, I mean, I haven't seen you in six or seven years. I'm not sure if you've been back right. to Toronto in six or seven not years. Not much. A little bit. Yeah. So yeah. when that. So how? What's the thinking? I I, I know you're busy. I know you're yeah. touring a lot out yeah. west. Is it just because coming out to the East Coast is a pain? It's expensive. You got to get a lot of gigs to make it worthwhile. Or how does that happen? I guess maybe that's part of it. I I just really got involved at home. You know, more. Um, I don't know. Things come up. You know, and, right. and you're just like, well, I have to focus my attention here for a while. And uh, and I've been enjoying it a lot. You know, sort of not being on the road so much right. in the last few years. But 
I, you know, I've done tours. I have done tours, and uh, I, I love to do that. And um, to me, nothing greater than live music. You know, it's it, it, in my experience as a musician. Yeah. And what's it like to get back together with the three of you? No, <laughs> four of you, but yeah, with, with the other two, and and saying, let's get the band back together, and, and starting to play a lot. And you obviously played a number of gigs yeah. this year. What's that feeling like to get back with with that band that you haven't played with in a long time? No, it's fantastic. You know, we have. Uh, it's interesting because a very natural uh, uh, interaction on stage or in rehearsal or in the van or whatever. It's like there's no. It doesn't seem like there's any egos floating around. You know, was it ever an issue before? No. <laughs> No, yeah. very beautiful that way, you know. Like, literally, it's the only band I've ever played with where nobody's ever late. <laughs> if, and I mean, it might sound a bit what, boring, musicians? you know, but I mean, <laughs> it's great to uh, go, well, we have to leave at 11, and everybody's at 1 minute to 11, they're all there ready to get in the van and go, you know. Um, it's so, it's not stressful right. and, and you don't have to worry about, it's not like herding cats or something, you know, it, okay. it's beautiful. That and way. so how did it, how did it happen that you decided that you would get to back together after a number of years? Um, it was, well, I don't know, you know, we had talked about it a couple of times on email and, and or, then. Or can, can I ask? Was there this reason why you didn't play for a long time? Like at the last, the last time you played together eight years ago, whenever, yeah. was it like let's all focus on our solo careers, or was there a plan, or just you guys just went your separate ways and didn't talk about it? Yeah, not really a plan. You know, it was kind of Lester was got involved in farming, you know, and he had to be home more, and he he's like, well, I don't know, I don't really want to go out and slog it out on the road but uh, myself I uh, it seemed like projects kept coming up and I was doing different things I played with yeah different people and and did a lot of recording and a lot of writing and playing doing my own records and in that space Slim got involved with Ndidi Onakulu and also with African Guitar Summit and he's done quite a lot of touring with both of those people mm-hmm. and so yeah there was really no plan um, when we started talking about this a couple of years ago it was like well let's just uh, we'll book some gigs and see how it all goes and uh, do some live recording and see how that goes and and we listened to some of the stuff, and a lot of it was great and, and everything, but we felt like, well, this, we we really need to shift this thing up a bit somehow. And I thought, you know, a drummer would really, really is key to this whole thing, I think. I just felt, I felt a bit burdened at times in the past because I was playing Stompbox mm-hmm. <clears throat> and, you know, singing and playing the guitar. And I felt like there's a lot of uh, pressure on me to maintain the groove. And sometimes it's very difficult to do when you got two guys, one on each side of you, kind of <laughs> doing, you know, pulling and pushing on the right. groove. And, um, 
yeah, so I felt like, you know, for me to really enjoy this this band, a drummer would be fantastic. And I had never met Michael before, and when he showed up for the first rehearsal, uh, <laughs> a few surprising things. First thing, we started playing in the first tune, and after the tune was over, I, I had to ask him, I said, do you think you could play a little bit louder? I can't, I can't really hear what you're doing over there. That's very unusual it, to ask. Very <laughs> unusual for a drummer. Like, yeah. So the guy has incredible sensibilities, and he's like, yeah, no problem. The other thing was then right away, Madagascar Slim goes, I, you need to get this rhythm, you know, the th three over two uh, Afri uh, Malagasy rhythm. And he showed it to him. And Mike's like, wow, okay. So he turned. And no kidding, in 10 minutes he had it down so he could play it cold. Like, just unbelievable. Slim was very impressed wow. by this. Well, Michael is an, he's a great musician and um, 31 years old, you know, lots of great energy. And some people uh, I know on the tours that we've done, have said, well, not so much a drummer, more like a percussionist, even though he's playing a full drum kit, you mm -hmm. know. And there's times when he really does get into, uh, you know, what you'd call drumming, and there's other times when he's really, uh, like, all over the place with percussion and shakers and various things, and fantastic. It just really is liberating. For, for me, I know, like, I don't... I'm still playing a stomp box. It's only to keep my <laughs> leg from getting damaged. <laughs> Because I like to play the rhythm with my heel, you know. So does that change things in, in the way that you approach your stomp box? No. no. Okay, so I having just, the drummer doesn't change. I maybe. just follow the drummer. You know what I mean? The, yeah. The drummer is holding the groove. So as a guitar player, singer, you can lean on the groove forward or back. and It really sets you free and the groove doesn't move with what you're doing, you know. It's fantastic. And so Michael comes from, he works with Lester, correct? Is that he, him and Lester are doing some stuff, yeah. So you hadn't played with him before? No. Wow. No. It must be a neat feeling when you meet new members and it fits like a glove. Yeah. And I yeah. don't know if that happens often or if that's a very difficult thing. It's rare, yeah. You know, I think it only happens a few times in your lifetime. And I guess we, we, we sort of realized that, uh, you know, a couple of years ago when we started talking about doing some gigs again, that the three of us, you know, we, we always got along really well and have, still have nothing but respect for each other. Mm -hmm. So this is fantastic. Uh, and and, and I think it's rare, very rare. Musically, it's not like you would automatically listen to the three and go, "Oh yeah, these three fit like a glove." Do you know what I mean? Like a, individually, you're both they're all talented, but mm. it's not like there's a connection that says, "If I listen to Slim, that I automatically think, oh, yeah, he would be great with Bill." Yeah. <laughs> like I just don't. I, that's what I find fascinating is that the three of you are so uniquely different, yet yeah. together, it's it's a neat combination. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's kind of magical. Uh, I I think um, I can tell you this that when we first started playing with Slim back in fall of nineteen ninety nine, 
uh, he started showing us Malagasy rhythm, and uh, we were just sort of like, what? <laughs> we're supposed to play this? How do you do this? And it was like, it was a very steep learning curve. But now we've had, you know, 15 years or more to digest uh, the whole idea. And it, it, feels, it feels very natural to us now. So that's, uh, uh, you know, a great development, uh, I think, probably for any musician to really be able to kind of ingest that foreign culture mm-hmm. of music and really have that opportunity over time to uh, actually articulate it and get really be able to get in there and play it, you know. How how different a musician do you think you are from the last time you played together with the oh, two yeah, other guys? Oh yeah, I learned so much. I learn new things every day. Mm-hmm. So and you collaborate well, with a lot it's of rare people. I don't, but you collaborate with mm. a lot of people. Mm-hmm. You're I always love getting new that. ideas. Yeah, there's that, but there, you know. The main thing, I mean, I guess in my own sort of like the cutting edge place, wherever that is, um, I'm experiencing things I've never experienced before, still. And music is so vast and so, it's like a huge rainbow of possibility. It's just like unbelievable. And the more longer you play, the more you realize it's just, it's just vast, vast scenario. It's really, it seems to me what's going on there is music is always playing. But the musician, they just, when they start to make a sound, they just tap into it. And it's an invisible energy. Hmm. You can't see it. You can't hang on to it. When you shut, when you stop the motion, any kind of motion, the music stops. It could be the speakers of your stereo. If they're not moving, there's no music. Or the strings of the guitar, or the, vo- the vocal cords, whatever. Something has to be in motion in order for us to actually even, you know, experience it. A, sh- a shared right. musicality. But, and yet that energy is always available. It's always there. And... and it's a, I really liken it to spiritual energy. Uh, the longer I play, the more similar it, it feels to me to be in, involved with that. I've heard songwriters talk about being just sort of like a vehicle for messages, that some yeah. things just come through them as opposed yeah. to them creating it. Yeah. Do you look at it that way? Oh, when absolutely. Yeah. It's really important... And more and more so, it seems to me, the longer you are in this thing, it's 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 vital that you w- practice being in a place where you're able to just like tap let in. it, yeah, tap into it, and and I guess submit to it really, uh, and let it play through you, you know. Tell yes. me how music first got into you, into your life. Uh, oh yeah, so my mom used to play the guitar when she was pregnant with me, and my dad played and her played in a band, dance band, and so they would be playing, you know, 
they'd start at eight o'clock and they'd go till midnight. Maybe there's a couple of little breaks in there and then everybody'd stop for an hour for the late supper and then often they'd start playing again and play till three, four in the morning. Wow. And so I was in my in, still inside my mom. She was playing the guitar and singing all night long, you know, and my dad's standing beside her playing the accordion. So there's where the thing started for what me. What kind of music would this have been? This was like popular dance music okay. in the 1950s. So some of it was related to Celtic music, dance music. Some was related to country music, dance music. You know. So you came into a musical family, so music was yeah. around you all it was the time. Always around, yeah. In fact, my mom told me recently I was a 10-month baby. Wow. And the doctor was getting very worried. She said, don't you worry about that kid. He's fine. <laughs> I said, well, how come you didn't tell me this a long time ago? But anyway, she, she finally decided to tell me that. Um, I, I, I thought about that, and I went, well, it's probably because I was just enjoying myself. The music was always there. <laughs> And, uh, you know, I was always warm, and I didn't have to worry about anything, so I just hung out in there. Do you remember how, when you started uh, to pick up an instrument? Or I presume yeah. it was there all the time, so you yeah. probably picked it up as soon as you could. Uh, you know, it's interesting. When I, I got to be sort of, like, big enough to pick the guitar or something, I wasn't very interested in it. I was playing with the other kids and doing other things. When I was 11, a clarinet showed up at our house, my uncle's clarinet. And I took it out of the box and put it together and started blowing notes on it, like, right away. <laughs> so they went, oh, well, this sounds, <laughs> sounds promising. <laughs> so I took lessons for a winter on the clarinet. Then I, then I took it to uh, some guys at school who wanted to start a band, and we went over to their house, and I took the clarinet. Of course, it was in like B flat and E flat, and all the guitar players were like, "Well, we can't play in all that's crazy. We can't play in that key." So uh, then I started playing the guitar, and I discovered Simon and Garfunkel and Gordon Lightfoot and people like that, and I was absolutely floored, you know. And that whole thing was going on. This was late '60s. Woodstock, all of that, and it just went. When I started to realize what was going on, on you know this massive scale, really, um, all that music that was happening in those mm. days, uh, I was really floored, and I was hooked. I haven't been. Uh, I worked as a mechanic for a little while in the late, you know, my late teens up until I was like twenty-one, and then. That was it. I stopped and started playing music professionally. Because, well, one I remember one day I was working with another mechanic who was in his 40s, and I remember looking at his hands, and they were really like a bit like claws, you know. And I'm like, oh, my God, if I, don't, if I keep doing this, pretty soon I won't be able to play the guitar. I better do something about that now or else, you know, not later. So that was when I made the decision. <laughs> and did you, did you have an idea what that was, what would, that life would be like, or what you were trying to pursue? Um, well, yeah, I 
thought I had an idea about what it was all about, but really pretty naive, you know, uh, I think in many ways, coming from a, growing up on a farm in Alberta, it was music was more something that it was just like light entertainment or something, right. you know. Whereas what I was hearing in the late 60s was something much more profound, mm -hmm. you know, and what I was feeling was something much more profound. Um, the kind of artist, the messages coming through the whole kind of scene, rock and roll, all that, folk music. There always seemed to be some kind of a message going on. And I mean, the message is about, you know, really, ultimately, when I started studying songwriting, it's, it was all about love, mm -hmm. loving each other, you know. People need to learn to love each other. And it's just as relevant now as it's ever, more relevant now than ever, I guess. So when you said studying songwriting, how did, what's that process? Is it just listening and, and playing along or... How did you study songwriting? Uh, just really uh, reading the lyrics, you know, of various writers going, well, I wasn't so concerned about the melodies and stuff. I realized fairly early on that, you know, the melodies, anything's possible, and just copying someone else's melody was like, pretty straight ahead stuff like why would you even bother but uh, it's a good learning tool all right but really had more to do with the lyrical content the, to me that's always what has been attractive about songwriting um my great-grandfather was a icelandic poet who immigrated from iceland when he was 20 years old and eventually moved to alberta not far from where I grew up, and farmed there. And he had a lot of poetry published in his lifetime. And, well, he's very well known in Iceland now. And then, mm -hmm. yeah. And uh, I started reading, I remember reading a bunch of the translated poems that he wrote. And I went, well, this guy's writing the same thing that Bob Dylan's writing. Like they're and John Lennon and uh, they're all writing about the same stuff, so I, yeah, now I really see what it's all about here. It's obvious. Before that, I was a bit, you know, you learn this song. And, oh, I wish I could write a song like this. Or, oh, I wish I could write a song like that, <laughs> and and not really sort of like comprehending like what was going on there. Like, what is the essential element? Then, like I say, I, I started to understand it was about love, compassion, you know, all of the good stuff that helps people, heals people, uh, makes life easier. Um, you know, it's not, life is not about drudgery and slavery and the stock market, you know. It's about people and comfort and joy. Did you ever think about taking your grandfather's lyrics and putting it to music? Yeah. It's been done. Oh, okay. Uh, ten songs or so by uh, a guy named Richard White, who, uh, whom I've met, and I, I don't know very well, but 
But yeah, it's it's a bit controversial to me because the potency of the lyric is really diminished in translation. Hmm. And he wrote all his poetry in Icelandic. He he could write and speak fluent English, but he didn't think it was much of a language for poetry. Not surprisingly, I suppose. <laughs> and how much of an Icelandic background do you have? Uh, half my mom's side of the family is all Icelanders. She's have you been there? Her first language was Iceland. Okay. Yeah, I, I've been to Iceland six times or seven times. Yeah. Played a lot in Iceland. Oh, wow. It's a beautiful place to go and hang out. <laughs> it's quite astonishing. And, uh, the amount of musicians in Iceland is profound they actually the church came there three four hundred years ago and told them that you know music was taboo and you can't have music and and they like basically stopped they didn't have any music wow at a hundred years ago they had a form of rhythmic poetry that they would dance to sometimes and it was quite guttural kind of non-musical but rhythmic Mm -hmm. but they said they told me when I was in Iceland that when the Americans in the Second World War built an air base in Iceland at Keflavik and then they started to bring bands over to entertain the troops and the Icelanders went and listened to this music and they were shocked (laughs) they hadn't heard that music that's crazy. They, they didn't know what it was, you know. And so then they really started to get into it. And now the, the music in Iceland is just like, there's amazing stuff going on there. Well, that's fascinating because they're so isolated. Yeah, yeah. It was very isolated for a long time. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's, it's like a cocoon, eh? And then it's like a butterfly now. <laughs> <laughs> so when you decide to pursue music, um, how easy was that to, to pursue it as a career and to say, I'm going to make my living being a yeah. musician? Yeah. Uh, challenging a little bit in some ways, but it seemed easy. Like I, I just went, took my guitar and went down to a booking agent and uh, auditioned and I was working like right away. Really? Yeah, wow. in northern Alberta, playing in bars. I was supposed to have an electric drummer, which they called a rhythm ace. Right. And I had to know 50 top 40 country songs. <laughs> so this is the country circuit. Oh, yeah. So I said, okay. <laughs> and then <laughs> I never did get a rhythm ace. I couldn't stand the things. They were ridiculous. And... Uh, to, to my mind, anyway. And I learned a few country songs just so that I could pull one out if I needed it. And which I did from time to time, and people appreciated that a lot. These would be what kind of towns? Like mining towns? Or like, uh, like what kind of towns are we talking about in northern Alberta? Yeah, farming communities, okay. also oil fields, you know, big sort of oil field presence, right. oil field workers in some places. But a lot of them were farming communities, you know, Fairview, Alberta, Peace River, 
Grand Prairie, Fox Creek, White Court. Yeah, you know. And are we talking like six nights a week or? Yeah, we... often, yeah. six. That was typical, six nights a week, Sunday off. Yeah. And did you think, this is the life? No. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, this is a good chance to practice. This is a good opportunity to learn what I'm doing up here, playing music. This is an opportunity. And that's that's entirely, the, right from the beginning, that's how I viewed, you know, that particular part of what I was doing. So, yeah, I haven't played a gig like that for a long time, you know, but, yeah, it really was very instructive to get up there six nights a week and play music and go... You know, after a couple, three weeks of that, you go, oh, I see. Yeah, okay. Now this is like... <laughs> and, um, yeah, it's not... What do you see? You see that it's not about you. It's about the whole thing. It's about the kind of vibe that's going on and how people feel. And it's it's really all about that. And, you know... There, when you first start to play music, there's this kind of thing, oh, yeah, I'm the musician here, you see? Everybody's looking at me and all this nonsense. And <laughs> I guess, you know, as a musician, it's a responsibility. It really is, truly. Like, you can get up there and be a, you know, you know less than what you could be, or you can get up there and really take on the responsibility of, connecting with the music and putting, you know, your arms around the people and giving them a big hug. That's really what they're looking for, you know, in so many ways. Easier said than done. Well, yeah, it, it takes some practice and some time, and you have to work your way through it. I mean, I guess some people are naturals, you know, I don't know, but... Uh, for me, anyway, I had to uh, experience it to really kind of understand what's going on there, and I'm still learning, so I love that. It's it's like it keeps expanding. Was there a point where something happened that changed your outlook or the way you saw things in, in, in terms of performance? Um, yeah, I suppose... You know, it, it it was more incremental, I guess. Not so much uh, sort of like one incident that right. was kind of profound. But I do remember getting on big stages a, a couple of times early on uh, with a lot of people and, and being kind of overwhelmed by the amount of energy going on there. And really uh, kind of took over and uh, I was a bit out of control, you know. It was, that was a bit scary. And then uh, just realized that, well, you got to be grounded here, and as long as you're grounded, everything's fine. It just, you just relax, and it's, it's all cool. And so I haven't really had any trouble with that since, you know. Um, that was quite amazing, you know, this kind of feeling that the the energy that was going on in the music was like, sort of overwhelming your body or something, you know. It's like, whoa, I didn't expect that, you know. But you have to go through those. 
And along the way, did you set goals or did you, was there like, did you think, oh, I need to record an album or I need to play festivals or, yeah. did you think that way? Um, yeah, to a degree, you know, I really, it's like once you start to record, then that's your job, you know, to keep putting out records because you realize that as a musician, it's really all you have. I mean, you can play the last note and then there's silence, right? Mm -hmm. Without those recordings, there's no record of what happened or what you were doing. And that's a reference and people can turn to it, you know, and go, oh, this, this, I I remember this song or whatever. And this is cool. Um, It it really helps you to get gigs Mm -hmm. because people can (laughs) reference that, right? Um, I I do remember my first audition. You see, when I decided, made up my mind to stop being a mechanic, and I was 21 years old, and I, I went, okay, there's only one thing about this. I'm going to do this, but nobody is going to tell me what to play, right? I'm going to play what I feel I need to play. And then, of course, my first audition with a booking agent... I walked out of there and I went, oh, that guy tried to tell me what to play. He just told me what to play. (laughs) The first thing that happened. (laughs) So anyway, I've always really kind of stuck with that. I mean, I just, uh, we're mixing a new solo record of mine uh, right now. And the process of writing the songs was one that I had never really attempted before where I spent about a month and a half writing lyrics, you know, a couple of books full of lyrics. So you're just sitting down, concentrating on lyrics only. Yeah, because I had an idea of what I wanted to write about and various aspects of it, right? And so I wrote all these lyrics, and of course I got all these lyrics together, and then, of course, I don't have melodies or anything for these so-called songs (laughs) so I had to go through that second half of the process of actually sort of developing that thing into songs yet really crucially to me the the lyrical content is crucial you know is really vital like I'd always relied in the past on these kind of inspired moments where all of a sudden I, I, I'd pick up my guitar and there's a new song and it just came out. That's, I, that's melody, lyrics and... Everything, yeah, all at once, right? And in five minutes you got like most of a song, right? And wow. you might have to add a little bit to change yeah. a couple of little things. But whereas uh, in this case that hadn't happened for a while. And I'm just like, you know, there's a kind of couple songs, but, you know, I didn't have enough for an album. I really needed, you know. And my experience with this process of, you know, oh, I'm going to write a song now, it was, uh, yeah, it, it was frustrating because every time I tried that, it never seemed to really work out to be anything. Hmm. And it all totally forgettable. And so I had always relied on these inspired moments, right? So it's like, well, I need, I really got to get this uh, new record done because that's what I do, and I got some things I think I really f- need to say. 
I really feel I need to say these things. So I'm going to have to do something different because these inspired moments are not coming up. Was that frightening? A little bit, uh, yeah. You're like, kind of like, well, will they ever come up? <laughs> you know, and uh, yeah, it was. Uh, it's, it's like, how do you get past? You know, some people call it writer's block, maybe. Mm-hmm. I don't know. But it's like, how do you get past that? It's, you know, because like I say, my experience had been, oh, you can sit down and sort of consciously try to put a song together, but never seems to be much of anything going on there. Whereas the inspired moments, they just like, they're electrifying, you know. So anyway, really interesting because I was able to, through that writing process, get my ideas on paper that I really felt I needed to, I wanted to communicate. Um, then the process of the music and marrying the lyrics with the music, that became part of the recording process. So what I discovered, and I didn't know what else to do, you know, really, is I had the lyrics, so I'd turn on the microphones and start recording thinking, well, I'll try this kind of groove. So just this. working things out. Yeah, and just kind of working things out and try to, try to get a handle on it. Because, first of all, then I could come back the next day and I want if I remembered something I wanted to check out because it felt kind of good, then I could go back and have a listen. I wouldn't have, have to worry about trying to remember or anything. But also, I know, you know, the process really evolved into this. So... You kind of get going into a, a certain kind of song. Maybe it's uh, major chords or something, in the, and the lyrics seem to work with this, and it's okay. And you kind of go with it for maybe you know a few hours, and then ah, it didn't really pan out. It starts to just sort of die out, you know. And then change it completely, different rhythm, different, and really interesting. And then all of a sudden, the thing it's sort of catch fire, and then you get it, you know. And some of them are the tracks. I mean, that's where the track, the songs, like the recording came from. Is that similar to the inspired moments that you used to get? Yeah, it's like the lyrics are there, but now the music is kind of setting it free. Um, Yeah, I I guess uh, very kind of interactive with the music in that way. You know what I mean? The music is trying to communicate to the musician what needs to happen here right. and there, and how does this thing even work? You know, it's quite interesting, very very interesting uh, process. So, if it's a completely different process, mm-hmm. do you sound different? Like, if somebody would hear the yeah. album, the new album, would they say, "Oh, yeah, that's Bill Bourne," or would they say, "That's a little different from what I'm used to"? Well, hopefully, because I don't. It doesn't really sound like any other records I've done before. A couple of reasons for that. There's a lot of slide guitar on it, electric slide, and some banjo. But also, uh, my singing has evolved. I really uh, came to a point a few years back, and I thought about it before too, because it came up in conversations with other musicians and stuff. Is that you know, a musician writes a song and you write it out on a piece of paper, the lyrics, and you put the chords there and then you practice it. And when you get it, you know, you get so that you can 
sing it without looking at the page. Well, in my experience, often I could see the page. I could still see the page. Right. So then you sing, and then you go, okay, that's how the song goes. And then you get on stage and you play it. And then you go to the next stage and you play it. And you keep playing it. And then you start to go, but I'm just repeating myself. What is that? <laughs> it's like a parrot. Really? And I don't get it, you know. And the longer I play, the less I get that. I understand it because it's a definition, right, of a song. But improvisation is a whole other kind of energy. That's I noticed a long time ago, as soon as I start to improvise on the guitar, people would sit up and they, they changed their posture. I'm like, oh, something going on here, right? That, and so then I really started to work on that part, but still the vocal parts, you know, it goes this way, right? right, right, right. <laughs> so now uh, it's like now I, the longer I'm singing, the more I want the vocal part to be free. The freer, the better, you know. Do But you have some recognizable songs. So when you start playing, your audience reacts and says... Mm-hmm. I, like, I know this song, I like this song, or, oh, good, he's playing the song that I like. So when you change it up a little bit, do you risk losing your audience a bit? or? Well, I think there may be some risk there, all right, because sometimes, oh, once in a while, people have said, well, how come you're singing it's so much different? But not usually, because... You know, to me, it's like if if I'm free with the melody, yeah, it's demanding, but uh, the voice is pretty flexible, you know. It really can, you know, you don't have to worry about the strings and your hands and your fingers like you do with a guitar. It's right. right inside your body. So it can instantly sort of like move around. The main thing is that you're communicating. And as long as you're communicating the, the lyrics, the meaning of the words, people, they don't care what it sounds like. They probably don't even, I think they probably, don't, in many cases, don't even notice mm-hmm. that it's a different melody or whatever. And in fact, uh, I know for me, it really helps to, in some cases, reignite a song because if I've been playing it the same all the time for a long time and then suddenly I just like, I've had it with that, I want to sing it differently and just let go of that idea, let go of it. Then the thing comes through in a different way and it's, it's easier to sing. It's easier to communicate. Mm-hmm. It seems more in the moment, and it is more in the moment, and that's really kind of where it's at. Once you decided to become a musician, did you ever question it? Did you ever think, I should go back to yeah. fixing machines or being yeah. a mechanic? Or Yeah, well, because I have a family, and my wife and I split up after a while. I realized after a while that she wasn't really going to be happy 
being if I'm gone all the time. And, mm-hmm. and so I sort of went, you know, maybe you should, we should go separate ways and you should find someone who's going to make you happy. And that was stressful for my children, of course, and uh, me too, but more importantly for them and for my ex-wife. But we're fortunate in that we, it was a bit strenuous for a little while, but we reconnected. So now we have just great respect for each other. We love each other very much. And the kids realize that. I mean, they have for quite a long time now. And so, yet. Yeah, it could be worse. You know what I mean to say, um, if you love someone enough to marry them and even have children with them, how can you possibly ever hate that person? Mm -hmm. I don't understand that. But, you know, uh, it's something that people struggle with often Mm -hmm. in uh, that kind of scenario. It took a bit of work, but it's more than worth it to actually have a relationship with the mother of my children and all of that. It's a beautiful thing. So I'm just, I feel so great and lucky about it. And she married a great guy, and we all get along really good. So it's good. <laughs> and she's happy, you know. That's good. And, and so, your son, if I remember correctly, he's a musician as well, is he not? Yeah, he plays. He's also a chef. And he's, oh. he does very well being a chef, and he likes that a lot. Wow. Also a tough career, but an amazing career. Yeah, amazing. He's yeah. he's doing well with it, so it, it's good. He has a knack for it, and uh, it's very creative, and he, he likes that about it, and it's a steady job. And he eats well. And he, <laughs> I had told him that at one, when he was like 16 years old. I said, you know something? If you don't want to go hungry, work in a restaurant. <laughs> and I think he uh, took it to heart. So with the music industry changing and and drastically changing, even since the last time I saw you, how does that affect the way you do things? Like you're saying you're recording a new album. Does it make you think twice about recording a new album because things are different with albums? You don't sell as many CDs, you're streaming stuff and whatever. Or is it still the tool of the trade that you need to do? Yeah, it is. It's what stimulates your market. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I can't see any reason to stop recording. Like I said, it's it's really all a musician has. I mean, in the end, you could do whatever you want, but if there's no record of it, there's no... It's like a, a writer that doesn't write books. You're not a writer anymore. But you see, you see making CDs more important than playing live? No. It, to me, the CDs really help the live thing okay. out. And, of course, that's where you sell CDs. Right. So it's it's kind of essential. But, yeah, no, I, I really, uh, I guess if you're a, a musician, if you don't make records, I, I don't, I can see that possibly... Uh, one day, if everything on this planet changes for the better, that records won't be necessary anymore. But as it is now, uh, or has been anyway, uh, they're kind of essential just to keep the ball rolling, I guess, as it were. Mm-hmm. You know, without 
like Tricontinental right now doing these tours, without a new record, uh, it would be like, okay, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, we've heard this before or whatever, yeah, you know what I mean, yeah. to say, yeah, so. And and so what happens next? Um, is there, when does this album come out for the first place, and like the one that you're working on? Uh, well, that remains to be seen, but probably, hopefully before Christmas, but maybe early spring or something. And just tour on that again. Like we will oh, always see you in the neck of the wood. Yes. And then yeah. try Continental. Is there additional yeah. dates or with more bigger yeah. plans? Yeah, we're we're starting to work on a new album and get material together for that, for another one. And uh, But it, that'll be a year at least before that comes out. So yeah, it's a process and it's just like you just keep kind of yeah. walking through the process and... It's good because it keeps you alive, creative, uh, good energy. Um, it keeps your music kind of moving. Um, everything's changing in the world around us. How can the music that's you're performing not change? I mean, it has to change. I mean, it really, maybe the changes are incremental and subtle, and that's to be expected. You know what I mean? I could... I could play punk rock maybe, but that would be sort of more like a calculated idea than it would be a natural one, at least for me. But do you ever think about in, in terms of, is it is it all about what inspires you? Do you ever think, if I did this, I could make more money or, do you know, like does, does finance ever come into the next move or that's it's never that way? Well, see, to me, if you're thinking in those terms you're killing what you're doing um because that thing you know in the ideal terms the music or the songs they want to come through the musician into the world for the world you know people to experience mm -hmm. so in order to maintain integrity in that process if you start thinking you know about the stock market and how your song relates to that and suddenly your motive is shifted to money let's say then it seems to me you're going to fall into this trap of really second guessing your yourself I don't know. I mean, to me, it's it's about what do I feel inside and what do I feel is important to be saying as an artist at this moment. That's what it is. And it every you finish one record and then it's like, okay, so now what do I have to say now? Mm. Like you start working on the next one, really. Um, I haven't done a lot of recording in the last, six years I did make a record and came out in 2015 with a band called Transcapes that is completely improvised nothing on the recording was ever played before hmm. it, it's not like we took this song and then we improvised it there was no song right. it was like a groove and then we tried a different groove and a different groove and, and uh, we did several recording sessions over months 
But this one night, these two people came, uh, Lisi Summer and Itsumi Kuribayashi. They came to the jam, and we started playing. And right from the beginning, the little hairs on the back of your neck were like dancing. And luckily, you know, we recorded it and kind of sat on it for a while. I'm like, well, what, this, you know, we'd play it. And you go, well, this is cool stuff. I mean, it's, on one hand, it's like meditation music. On the other hand, it's like party music. And it could, either or. Can but, you replicate that? Uh, not really. Uh, you can kind of generally. Right, but that yeah. kind of becomes something else then. Yeah, it's right? never the same twice. <laughs> yeah. No, really interesting. Um, and... We've, at the time, this idea of there's this thing in Sanskrit, ancient Sanskrit, called the Eightfold Path to Enlightenment. And this is eight kind of aspects. And so there's only six songs on this record. One of them is like 13 and a half minutes long. But we named the songs after these, these various aspects of this Path to Enlightenment. So all the titles are Sanskrit. There's singing bowls, there's drone instruments, there's violin, there's guitar, stomp box, percussion, sort of improvised vocals that are not lyrical. There's no lyric. And anyway, I took it in the studio and we mixed it and I sent it to my record company, True North, and they loved it. I was shocked, you know? <laughs> I go, really? Well, that's great, you know? Like, and it turned out that they had just gotten involved with a label in Colorado that does that kind of music. So now the album's available all over the world. That was a beautiful experience for me because it was all improvised. There was right. nothing that wasn't new on there. But, okay, so can you tour with this? <laughs> oh, I guess you could. Uh, and interestingly... We have a whole bunch of recording sessions that were done in a very similar manner. Right. And there's some stuff that's very special, but I mean, I haven't had time to look at it all, you know, but we may put out another record <laughs> or maybe two or three, you know, but whether we tour or not is another question. I'm not sure. But a lot of the improvisational stuff would be about the moment and yeah. things happening. Yeah. So when you record and put it on tape or whatever... Mm-hmm. and listen to it back. Is it the same experience? Uh, you, you do. There is a remnant of that experience that comes through the recording, yeah. So you can feel it. Yeah, you can feel that this is, it's like a searching, and it's like it's coming up. Right. And it's not premeditated. You can feel that. Um, it seems like, anyway, to me, but... And you know when you go when you go through that process of in the studio mixing and listening to them over and over again, you know if there are fatal flaws in the music or whatever that it's, it's sort of nowhere <laughs> like you start to figure that out pretty fast. <laughs> <laughs> it's hilarious. Um, we're going to wrap this up soon. But I remember once having a conversation with you, and you said something that was really interesting to me. You, we talked about money, 
and you said, when I worried about money, yeah. Can you repeat that? Yeah. Because it was just, it was fascinating to me. No, it's true. Every time I've gone on tour, if I focus on the money, I never get as much money as I expected. The money would disappear. Yeah, it's like it just didn't come. As long as I focused on why I was there, the music, the people, always got more money than I expected. Always. So, to me, it just says, don't, don't worry about that. I mean, I've never been hungry a day in my life. Why would I worry about money? I mean, it, it's a non-issue. <laughs> it's a great way of looking at it, when, especially when it comes true. So, um, thank you. I know you're, you just got back from Germany. You yeah. must be exhausted. You're going to drive back to Edmonton. Yeah. Um, but I really appreciate you taking this time. It's, it's always a thrill for me to sit down and talk to you. So thank oh, you so much great. for doing you do, this. You're such a great interviewer. Well, thank you. Oh, thank you're too you. kind. Thank you.